Welcome to episode 19 of the Pirates of the Airways podcast. This is the podcast where me, Mark Wakeley, talks to some of the people involved in the land-based pirate radio scene of the 1970s and 1980s. In the first part of this two-part special, I get four old pirates in a studio, light the anorak touch paper and stand well back. In this conversation between Laurie Hallett, on air name Brian Marshall, Martin Spencer, Dave Lane, Mark Dazani, Roger Vosine, and me, Mark Wakeley, Steve Justin, as you know. We talk about how we got into pirate radio and the first tentative steps into broadcasting, and why we got involved in this legal activity in the first place. There's plenty of radio talk and some insights into the beginnings of Radio Zodiac, Phoenix Radio, and Alice's Restaurant. The second part of this epic will be out in two weeks' time. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then please do at piratepod7080 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments or anything you've got to say about the show. We'd also like you to like, follow and review if you possibly can. It really helps us with the algorithms. If you like the podcast and would like to support it, then please buy me a coffee to help cover the recording and hosting costs. All you have to do is go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash markwakeleyw. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash Mark Wakeley W. I'd really appreciate it. Now, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome to the podcast, the Pirates of the Airways podcast. Um, we've got a very, very special one this week. There are four of us, all ex-pirates, sitting in a radio studio somewhere in the south of England. So, I've got Laurie here. Hello. Sitting to my left. Right opposite me, I've got Mark. What's your Mark? Roger Vosine. <laughs> I've got Martin, Dave Lane. Hi, all. And, uh, and Laurie, who was... Brian Marshall. And many names, I think. Yeah. And me, Mark, who is Steve Justin, of course. I'm going to hand things over to Lawrence because he is in control. So uh, do you want to start with the first question I ask everybody? Should we... Well, I'll kind of go round clockwise. So, uh, uh, Mark, the question that he always asks is, when did you first become aware of pirate radio as opposed to just radio in general? Well, I think pirate radio was my introduction to radio in general. In that I remember listening when I was about five years old um, to Radio Caroline and Radio London back in 1966. Um, we were starved of radio in our house. The radio had broken down. It was under the stairs. My granny gave me a beautiful Bakelite set, which the first thing I did was, um, and a glowing dial, and the first thing I did when I got it home was stick it on the kitchen surface, plug it in, stick a bit of wire in the back, and um, tune to... Um, Radio Caroline and Big L, uh, because I was aware of it, because my older brother had a transistor radio. He was in boarding school, but when he came home at the weekends, he had his tranny, and he loved Tony Blackburn, so he, he used to listen to Caroline and Big L when uh, Tony Blackburn moved to Big L. So, um, yeah, and I, I remember the Pirates, the MOA as well, which I must have been about six years old, 
And um, I remember seeing it on the news. I remember Caroline being um, the last station on the air and always urging my mum to tune back from uh, Radio 1 uh, every time they played a, a cover version of a pop song by the Northern Dance Orchestra and saying, yeah. tune back to Caroline, they play originals. And then, of course, um, it wasn't there one day. And I remember hearing uh, Roger Twiggy Day on um, Radio Luxembourg. He was my favourite Caroline DJ at the time. And then in 1970... Um, I saw an article in the Daily Sketch um, with this picture of Roger Day in a massive studio on a boat and saying Radio North Sea International has been launched. And that's when I truly immersed myself in, um, in pirate radio. And by then I was nine years old, eight, nine years old, and was fully aware of um, what was really happening and what was going on. And um, I think so I've just been imbued. I mean, when I was young, I used to play with my soft toys, teddy bears and things and make TV and radio shows with them, basically. So um, I'm a born anorak. <laughs> they start them early in Surrey. How about you? Sussex, Sussex. Sussex, I beg his pardon, sorry. <laughs> Terrible slur. Uh, well, can I have two stories for the price, price of one? Go on. Yeah. Um, I do remember RNI getting jammed whenever that was, when the general election was, about 1970. June 1970, yeah. Right, and I think at the time, so it doesn't fully answer the question, because at the time I wasn't aware that it was a pirate, but I was aware that there was something really weird going on and that it was jamming. I think, I, you know, I was aware that somebody didn't want me to, listen, to be able to listen to this. So that was a kind of, a, just a taste, but I didn't, I didn't fully wake up and realise what it was. And then, unlike everybody else, it wasn't Caroline. Caroline actually came in after. It was, um, there was a documentary, I think, on London Weekend Television in about 1977, which was all about Jackie. And uh, they, they actually went into the field with the prams and the lookouts. Absolutely amazing programme. And when did it end? 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. So I caught the second half of it. My brother shouted over to me, Oi, there's a programme on TV about radio. I think it's, I was already, already had a crystal set. I was already into, into radio. Um, so, of course, having watched this extremely exciting documentary, at 11 o'clock, I got my Decca portable and started tuning around to see if I could find Radio Jackie and bumped into East London Radio. And absolutely, that was the moment that changed my whole life because it was so much more exciting than anything else I'd heard. Two stories for the price of one, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because Mark always says that uh, the, the drug of entry is Caroline, but for Martin and me, it was Radio North Sea International. I don't remember the jamming, but I do remember the firebombing. Wow. So that, so that because, because that's how I figured out that it was a pirate station. I asked my dad, what's all this about? Um, but before that, I just thought it was just another radio station. Didn't, didn't know it was anything other than an ordinary... Commonwealth Garden radio station. So, yeah. yeah. And for me, of course, as soon as East London Radio went off, it was like someone had turned out the lights on the day. It was everything got boring again. And so I immediately was tuning around and then started listening to Caroline during the week when the land-based pirates weren't on. Well, it was Radio North Sea International which switched me on to shortwave and DXing and eventually becoming a shortwave pirate myself because when it was... Um, first of all, when it launched, it was 186 metres and it was... All I could hear was a sideband. It was just off the dial of our radio. But I figured I heard them say shortwave. We had a shortwave on the set. And I went to 6205 or 62, yeah, 6205. And there it was loud and clear. But then during the jamming, I mean, when it came to the British coast, it was fantastic. The signal was amazing. And then when the jamming came on, um, again, 
went to shortwave to listen to it, but for a while it was jammed by the Norwegians as well because they were on a 6210 then, I think an emergency channel. And, and for those who don't know, the jamming, I believe, and I, obviously I wasn't there, but I believe the jamming was partially carried out from the Marconi works in Chelmsford. Can anybody verify that? I think it might have been initially, but when they put the mega jammer on, it came from a place in Kent, I think. Beacon Hill, I think, appropriately enough, or something like that. I think there was an irony there as well, because what happened was, I think, it, it was the, um, a transmitter that had been allocated for Radio Caroline that was um, taken by the British government, which... I think there is a whole story there. Yes, yeah, yes. I yeah. think it was intended for Odisha That's at the right. time, and the yeah. um, there's a 50 kilowatt AM transmitter which ended up in the hands of uh, of uh, a Crowborough, I think, and I think it might have got moved around. Yeah. Right. Right. So there may be various stories slightly mixed up there. Well, I'm sure one of but, our listeners will know this in for sure. great but detail. I mean, one, one of the yeah. I mean, it'd be good to get feedback on this. But one of the interesting things, of course, is that was the British government deliberately interfering with another broadcast. Didn't which, happen in World War Two. Yep, they never yeah, jammed which, the which Nazis. is actually yeah. illegal under international law. Absolutely, yes. Um, so it's, yeah. It was a real personal <laughs> battle between Harold Wilson and Ronan O'Reilly. Right. Ronan was like, nobody hurts the lady. And, and um, because during the charming, Ronan O'Reilly got involved with Radio North's International and it became Caroline International. I was actually miffed at the time because I loved R&I and... I, and um, and suddenly became Radio Caroline International. And Ronan got involved in the, this massive political campaign, which arguably, and I think believe, actually did help swing the, um, the election towards the Tories because Labour were in the lead. They called the snap election. They didn't, didn't expect to lose. First election in which 18-year-olds were allowed to vote. And, um, and a very pinpointed, targeted campaign um, with the tour bus and the whole Harold Wilson, um, who do you think you're kidding, Mr. Wilson uh, campaign, um, they targeted marginal constituencies in the area, especially of East Anglia and Kent. Um, and there were, there were enormous swings against the Labour Party. So Ronan got his revenge against Harold Wilson. Mm. So that's, that's how we, each of us found out about this. But how did you move, Mark, from being a listener to Pirate Radio to getting your hands dirty? Well, it must have been somehow we found out about this whole network before the internet of um, free radio organisations. First of all, the Free Radio Association that R&I and Caroline International used to promote on the air. And then you write to them. And then I bought all their back issues of Beatwave and Soundwave magazines um, and therefore and bought John Ven Venmore Rowland's book about Radio Caroline. So sort of learnt about the history and got a feeling for what the stations used to be like in the 60s. Um, in more detail, and then you, and then through um, Record Mirror, I think there were small adverts in there for free radio. They often had columns about free radio, Rodney Collins, um, and also uh, Christopher Chatterway's son. I think used to uh, the Minister of uh, Telecommunications in the in the Tory government in 1970. His son was a journalist. I forget which name he used. Obviously a pseudonym. Anyway, so in, you'd learn about what's happening there. You'd see the small ads, and I bought the Southern Independent Radio Association magazine, Sierra magazine, which is a fantastic magazine. Um, had Attitude, um, reported on pirate radio in Europe as well. It was political as well as Anorak. Um, and obviously lots of ads in there too. And they were down the road in Horsham. Uh, Mick and Joe Mayhew used to run that magazine. Very influential for me. Um, and obviously you'd start buying all the other free radio magazines on mail order. And I thought, oh, 
I'll I'll do my own as well. Free Radio Focus magazine, uh, which I launched um, initially just a photocopied sheet, and then it became as you got more and more elaborate, I guess Stettner machine and stencils and all that stuff and photocopying. And um, so I launched my own Free Radio magazine, and then I think. I wanted to do this myself, a radio station, a pirate radio station. So I used to spend hours on the phone with um, someone called Pat Travers up in Sheffield. And um, he introduced me to a guy called Dave Porter, a BBC engineer. Um, I think these names are safe to mention now. Um, he's retired. And, um, and uh, he used to build um, beautiful transmitters, uh, really well made, uh, for pirate stations. So it cost about 30 quid. And I, you know, there's a bit of money in those days, and I was only a school kid. So I interested all my mates into selling a share in this. How would you like to have a radio show and be part of a radio station? So five mates gave me a fiver each. I put a fiver in, and we got this beautiful 17-watt um, shortwave rig with a QQ VO310 um, output valve. I think, I'm not, I'm not sure if they're EL84s for the modulators. Sounds good. Um, yeah. It, Lovely rig. Gleaned from radiograms and old pie kit. Yes. And um, it arrived um, just before um, Easter Sunday, I think 1975. Um, and of course, Easter was always uh, very significant because of the launch of Caroline in 64 on Easter Sunday. And um, we, we tried our first test transmission and... Um, we didn't know really what we were doing. Um, we, we learned on the go. I've never been... I've always been technical in that I learn what I need to know. Um, but it's always... Um, the maths has always been a bit of a mystery to me. Um, so we plugged this in, and um, it was a mismatched aerial, and the some some big resistor, I think, in the power supply unit, it was a mains rig then, um, burnt out and just filled my mate's room with um, this acrid TCP-smelling sm smoke. And um, that was our first test transmission. But by July, we'd got the hang of it. I'd got a beautiful half-wave dipole with the, the, the bit in the middle, the T bit, a bit of old Meccano. Um, that's before we used to get matching transformers. And strung it in my garden, which was a perfect length for a half-wave for 48 metres between two trees. And um, we, the thrill, the thrill of getting your first reception report and, and, and being heard... I think the ionosphere was like a mirror that day. And, um, and there we were on the air, Radio Zodiac International, we called it. So that's how I actually got involved. Um, and I'll give someone else a chance before I carry on. Before you do that, out of curiosity, what did your parents think of this? You're running it from your back garden. What, what, did, what did your parents think? Um, they actually supported me. <laughs> they, they, they thought it was great initiative, probably kept me out of, uh, under their noses. And, um, you know, I was always up in my room listening to shortwave anyway and uh, QSLs all over the wall. And I built a little studio up there. And um, obviously there's solder blobs all over the carpet once you start yeah. getting into <laughs> trying to build your own stuff. But they, they, all, they always supported me doing it. You know, they pretty much knew what I was doing. I remember, you know, thinking, oh, it's a bit dodgy running from my bedroom and giving out this address, 13 The Chase, which was the address for my magazine and a mail drop for other stations. I thought, well, that will cover us. They'd never think I'd do that. But then I thought better of it, and my aunt supplied an address in Lansing, 49 Westway, Lansing, Sussex, we used for a while. But that was a pain because I had to sort of wait to go and visit her. All of a sudden, saw her much more often to go and pick up my mail. Um, so, you know, there's, it was pretty Mickey Mouse stuff at the beginning. And, and you know, we're learning on the...
the job. But it was, you know, it's classic how there was no breaks in radio in those days. And hospital radio seemed to me a little bit, you know, it's very worthy. And I, I admire those people who do it. But for me, it was um, a little bit boring. And with pirate radio, you had that whole thing of being illegal as well. The adventure of it and the network as well, the comradeship amongst other pirates. Because I had this magazine, Free Radio Focus, I was in touch with many other people who sent me information about their stations, and so you got to know the other pirate radio operators too. One of the things that comes across in the podcasts really well is, is the comradeship, the fact that everybody was helping everybody else all the time. And it wasn't until much later on in the whole scene, much farther on than we cover on this, um, that things started getting a bit unpleasant. And I think it was about the money in the end. And it's because we weren't doing it for the money. It wasn't about income. It's probably more ego than anything else. <laughs> but it wasn't about the money. It was because we just loved doing the radio. And I, and I understand what you say about um, hospital radio as well. It turned sour for me when people, you'd start getting your rigs nicked. Obviously not in raids, but by other people and third parties. And yeah, it, it went from people helping you have rigs, yeah. like you helped me <laughs> yeah. with rigs, um, Two people pinching each other's wrists. Yeah, and then, and then, of course, it turns nasty because you get the vigilanteism as, as well. But that was rare. Generally, it was, it was a great comradeship. And the other thing as well, which we'll come to later on as well, is that, you know, sometimes you make yourself unpopular when you start entering in the realms of putting out content other than music, should we call it, potentially political material too. And that can make you unpopular because, obviously, when... They, they, the authorities reacted more strongly to that and when they come out and busted you they'd go out and bust all the others too at the same time therefore they'd come out more often and you'd become unpopular within the uh, fraternity well let's ask the same question of martin then so so how did you uh, start to uh, go from uh, a listener to someone who started misbehaving in their own right um Almost immediately. I think, I think I was kind of okay as long as East London Radio and some of the other pirates of the era, such as Amy and uh, NLR, were all broadcasting on a Sunday. That, that was kind of enough to keep me going. And then there was Caroline during the week. So there was, you know, kind of enough to be going around. But then there came a point where all those AM pirates started to go off. And at that point, I immediately got interested I, I thought, well, we've, we've got to have something there. It was just an abs... I mean, people listening to this, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people listening who, who are, you know, who are, part of, who are part of the scene that we were part of, who, who kind of under, who get it, who understand. But for those who are younger and, and have grown up in today's world with the internet, I'd only say you can't... You, you just can't imagine. Words cannot explain to you how exciting this was because of the the impact of being able to suddenly communicate with a group of people who, let's be honest, were largely people of a similar mind to ourselves who were both transmitting and receiving. Um, because there was nothing. There was nothing. I mean, I'm going to try and do it in words, but I, I caveat that by saying that, you know, whatever I say, can't, just as someone who fought in a war can't explain to you what fighting in a war is like, which I think Hermann Hesse wrote, that... There's the reality of war, which cannot be expressed in words and cannot be communicated. It was kind of the same for us. It was so exciting. When you talk to students, and I talk to a lot of students because of my job, uh, who can instantly download anything they want, as soon as they hear something, they can download it or they can get it on their streaming service. When you explain to them that, for example, a new 
single comes out or a new piece of music comes out, you had to wait for it to arrive in a shop and you had to get there quickly because there were only four copies of it. Now, it's a, it's a completely different world. And, all, and in radio terms, that now there are plenty of different radio stations to listen to, either on air or on the internet, whereas in our day, that just was not the case. And I think that's the fundamental difference. It's very difficult for younger people to, to understand. Yeah, and what Mark said earlier about, you know, listening to BBC Radio 2, as it probably was in those days, or the light service, you know, literally playing the Northern Orchestra. Or Radio 1, Radio 1 when it Or came even on, on Radio yeah. 1, yeah, which was supposed to be the youth service. They would literally have, a you know, the, the BBC Northern Regional Orchestra playing their version the curse of, of, of needle a, time of a Beatles track or whatever it was another common thread I think is that we're probably all anti-establishmentarianisms or whatever that's uh, true uh, and anti-establishment and, and so the the excitement first of all of breaking the law or listening to stations that did that were on boats and offshore. of course even listening was breaking the law the adventure of going about doing that as well and, and listening technically as well under the Wireless Telegraphy Act um uh, as well, but I like you with ELR. I have to mention, apart from the offshore stations, those land-based stations that influenced me at the time. Of course, there's Radio Jackie, um, which was great. Uh, Radio Kaleidoscope, amazing station. Um, and then um, you know, for me, when I started hearing stations like Radio Concord and Radio Dynamite coming from squats, giving out more alternative information. I mean, Radio Jackie was wonderful, and today I listen to Jackie. It's wonderful that they've finally acquired a licence. They were never given it um, churlishly by no, the author, No, by the it was a battle, and they only got it after... Anyway, that's another I'm often, story. <laughs> yeah. I'm often going between Crawley and south-west London, and I'm listening to Caroline on AM in the car, and then I switch when I'm in zone to Radio Jackie, because uh, Caroline's <coughs> a, bit, a bit weaker in London, um, south-west London. And, um, you know, these two stations that I grew up listening to that influenced me so much, now that it's legal and they're on air still... It's fantastic, and Jackie is a great station. It's a great community radio station. It's got quality pop. It's got great presentation. Um, it's something I listen out of choice because I enjoy listening to, not just because it's an ex-pirate. The same with Radio Caroline as well. They're, they're still providing great alternatives, and they're independent. They're not part of these um, global massive chains. Yes, I think the, you know the whole aspect of independence and the ability to hear... A different viewpoint, which comes across in all sorts of ways. It comes across in the in the choice of music, the presentation style, what is said. You know, be it political or be it not political, doesn't really matter. There's something else I wanted to add about being anti-establishment, which I think is very important to point out. That although yes, we were very anti-establishment, we've also got to acknowledge the fact that this whole atmosphere of scarcity, which we were then able to plug into and provide an alternative to was created by the licensing regime as it was, which was very exclusive, which was basically the BBC. And in the beginning was the BBC and no one else. So in that way, whilst, yes, we, you know, we were, and we certainly felt at the time it was an ego thing, we felt anti-establishment. I think we also, also should acknowledge that actually the whole, that the system as it works in England or, or, or the UK generally did actually also enable that whole situation that we were able to take advantage of. One of the other podcasts that I've been on, The Interruption, he asked, why did we do it? Why did we run pirate radio stations? And I simply had to explain to him, because he was of an age that he didn't understand this, that we had Radio 1, 2, 3 and 4 
capital LBC and Radio London. That was it. That was all you had to listen to. And we wanted to create something that we wanted to listen to, not what somebody else told us was right for us. So that's why we started punk stations, rock stations, alternative stations, you know, community radio stations, because there just wasn't that. People, as we've already pointed out, people don't understand that there just was not that on-demand entertainment that we now have. Uh, and that's why we did it. I think there was a free song of excitement as well yeah. <laughs> for all of us. But um, it's really hard to explain now yeah, to It's people. not just wanting to break the law. It's no. you were actually providing, uh, filling in for something that wasn't, wasn't there. It always struck me, I think, that if they had licensed or bought onshore the offshore stations, we'd have had a much healthier commercial radio sector because... In Italy and France, those people who run the pirate stations, Bodecro with Energy in France, people like Hassan with the Radio 105, and um, also the Radio Milano International people who were pirates, and pirate radio became legalized, and they were legalized. And for me, the Italian radio sector is still exciting. Uh, because it was the people who pioneered, who were passionate about radio, who went to, to break the law because they believed that the law needed breaking. They weren't just uh, lawbreakers for the sake of it. Um, managed to maintain and grow in a, in a legalised scenario. Whereas in Britain, I think, you know, they outlawed the pirate stations. When they did licence commercial radio in Britain, it was on a very, very controlled basis. And, and really, we, we've never had a truly competitive sector in Britain. And I'm not just into, into free market, but also, you know, community stations as well. You know, I've always lobbied for that. But there's never been that free market or freedom in radio. It's, it's always been totally managed. It's a function of the, of the British state, you know, yes. which has a very particular centralised view of the world, which is much more so than in many other countries. And I, I said to, I remember saying to, to Mark in an earlier edition uh, that uh, my time at Ofcom, the fundamental difference, I mean, there's no way the Radio Authority or the IBA would ever have employed me. And I remember being told by a senior member of Ofcom, and I thought this was really telling at the beginning of the license of community radio he said we're not here to find reasons not to license stations we're to here to find reasons why we should license radio stations and that's a complete turnaround when Ofcom arrived now they're not perfect there's all sorts of things wrong with it but the point is that the attitude and the people involved if you look at the people that were involved in the radio authority and where they come from and what their backgrounds were and you compare that to a much more diverse type of regulator in Ofcom, that's why it's changed. Not perfect, but it's a complete turnaround. And all those arguments about scarcity were just bunkum. Yes, we knew that at the time. I just think um, when you read the reasons why certain people got ILR licences, and it was about the money in the end and having the right people from the establishment. You know, if you were a guy who, who loved doing radio and wanted to open up a radio station in your town, you were never going to get a licence because you didn't know anybody who could help you out. If you read the Broadcast Brothers book, it's a very good description of how they applied for an ILR licence and they had to have someone already on the inside to get that licence. Absolutely. Can I just give a solid example there? Because I was invited um, to be part of uh, an application for London um, on the team 
And my father was just poo-pooing it correctly. He said, you never get the license. He said, Lord Hanson's going to get the license. He's a best friend of Margaret Thatcher. And sure enough, you know, for better or worse, Melody Radio, which was a good station in its own right, got the license because you had that establishment figure and friend of the people in power on the board. Same with um, Capital Radio and Dickie Attenborough, although I, you know, I'm an admirer of Dickie Attenborough and Capital Radio. But, you know, you had to have that person on the board. But they were also incredibly London-centric. I remember Essex Radio, for example. Essex Radio, they said, oh, it's Essex, so we need studios in Chelmsford and studios in Southend. And when it was pointed out to them that the biggest population centre in Essex was Basildon, Oh, no, well, that's irrelevant. That's just a working-class, middle-of-nowhere town. It's got to be the county town. It's got to be South End. No concept of what the world was actually like in that part of the world. Right, yes. Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. I th- and I would just second that, all of that, of le- knowing what happened with all the Greater London FM licences, which were the last, you know, really big ones that mattered, and how those licences, um, you know, were initially uh, handed out, and then the fact that extra ones had to be found... Because actually, you know, some of the alternative applicants had really good cases. Um, is yeah, I mean, it's just a testament to how how the system was, and and how it has improved. Obviously, you know, I guess none of us are still particularly happy with it the way it is, but it certainly has, as Laurie was saying, it certainly has improved. And I think I think before we spend too long on this topic, also we we should remember that of course this was yesterday's battle was access to the analogue broadcast spectrum that isn't really the case anymore we now have online and you know for the foreseeable future small scale DAB and so now we've got a new battle or those who come after us have a new battle which is how to be visible how to be discovered um, which which was the opportunity that was handed to us on a plate of this immense scarcity and no provision for anything except you know BBC network radio, really. And now there's a proliferation, um, and how do you get spotted? So now yeah. we've got the proliferation, but now how do we, you know, how do those stations, A, contact their audience so they know, actually know they're there, which I think is something we all ignored to do back in the day, uh, and B, how do they, you know, how do they uh, pay their bills? Well, you could see the demand. Uh, I remember going down to our mailing address and knocking on the door of someone who had nothing to do with the radio station but had agreed to take our post and coming away with carrier bags full of letters and records and what have you. Um, And that was with no real publicity. And it's just because there was such a big audience crying out for alternatives. And as you say, now, how do you sort the wheat from the chaff? There's so much out there. It's a real challenge and the world is a completely different place. I think this underlined how vital what we were doing was. And I think behind all of that, it was technology-led. Um, the, we needed the technology to be able to do it. So we started off with valve transmitters, with mains, and then inverters, or, com- or rotary converters, and then inverters. And we'd go down and hunt out these crystals from second-hand ex-military shops in Tottenham Court Road and where um, and what have you and then we started getting transistorized and FM equipment as well which made things more mobile um, and it was technology led quite often um, and as you said before a lot of uh, people were engineers who run radio stations as well because we, 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 we depended on them and so some, one of the most subversive things about this whole thing were the engineers who were feeding um, and making it possible for people who wanted to get on the air um, to get on the air. And the more 
the better. I mean, there were issues, obviously, because we had to fight this battle against us of, oh, they interfere with aircraft frequencies. And I dare say there were a few uh, sprogs around or spurious emissions um, and people who weren't quite qualified enough. But generally, I found that the pirate operators were very responsible and very proud of their technical standards, whether that be transmission and audio as well. One of the things sitting here, the four of us, we all worked and ran different stations at one time. Every single one of those stations was defined by the music they played. It was, we weren't pop stations, we weren't community stations really, maybe community of interest. But what we all did is we all played an alternative music which wasn't really being covered properly on the radio. And I think that's a really important thing to mention as well. Yeah, absolutely. That, that and also the fact, as, as um, was mentioned in the Radio City interview, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, was that it wasn't just the music. Yes, on the radio it was the music, but it was the fact there was a culture behind the music and the fact that the station could, you know, could represent that culture in a way which was completely unheard of at the time but is now more commonplace. Yeah. If, if you go back to the engineers, though, I mean, twas ever thus. If you look at, uh, what's his name, Peter Eckersley, uh, who was the first BBC's, uh, BBC's chief engineer. Now, he started with Marconi. Marconi 2MT, 2MA Toc in Rittle, didn't have a licence when it started broadcasting, even though the Wireless Telegraphy Act 1904 was in force at that point. So, you know, the, the idea of creating broadcast radio uh, was largely driven by people who had professional jobs in communications who were experimenting. You can go back to, um, what's the guy in Canada? Fessenden, Reginald Fessenden, you know, picking up his fiddle and playing on, on Christmas Eve and carols and what have you. Uh, his day job was working in, in radio development, in communications. And so that kind of driver, and, and you can see that repeated today with, you know, startup tech companies and the sort of things they're doing on the internet. Um, I, you know, I don't regard myself as an engineer, but I think that engineers uh, were an, underpinned and facilitated that musical uh, diversity. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to dive in there and don't forget that, yes, we got fed by char charging, you know, a little bit of money for rigs. Um, but um, we... So, yes, we were feeding, but we were also getting fed. It was a bi-directional process. And I've actually managed not to have a proper job all my life because of that, for which I'm <laughs> eternally grateful to everybody. Thank you. <laughs> I think um, if we were around now, they'd call us disruptors. Yes. We yeah. would be disrupting the market and disrupting the yeah. technology and everything else. Well, I think that is the point. If you look at the, the development and expansion of radio in this country... I think it was a pincer movement. You had the pirates out there doing it, demonstrating that you could make good radio uh, on low budgets without a lot of oversight. And you also had campaigning organisations from Free the Airwaves, the Community Radio Association, etc. And it was very difficult for government to avoid. I mean, look at the 1985 proposed experiments and the way that tore the Conservative Party apart between the two wings of the Conservative Party and eventually, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the more regressive part of the party decided that this wasn't going to go ahead. But they, they won that battle, but they lost the war because look at where things are now. Yes, yes. Well, again, you know, technology is, is making legislation quite often irrelevant. Legislation is, is following the technological advances. And you mentioned, you know, about uh, DAB, of course, internet radio um, as well. You know, the, and how do you make yourself stand out in the proliferation? But anyone can do it. 
And if your product is appealing to um, a significant amount of people or a special niche or interest, and you promote it in the right way, because social media gives you that ability to promote yourself inexpensively as well, um, you can get stations, you've got stations with probably just their mum listening up to stations like Radio Paradise and Radio Caroline again is, has an enormous internet audience. Um, and, you you know, if you're doing the right thing, um, you can get heard and you can. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't indicating that no one's listening. I mean, clearly, some of the volunteer-led community stations, I mean, we, we broadcast Resonance FM in London, and they have something like 300 contributors. So you take 300 contributors and all their mates and all their contacts... And then you're, you know, you're, you're looking at quite a big audience. And, and again, there's the response. We know that they get the response. Well, it is the old story, isn't it? Content is king. Uh, I remember with uh, Laser, for example, arriving and people saying, oh, no one listens to AM. But of course they listen to AM because what they offered in terms of programming was something very different from what ILR was offering, uh, very different from what the BBC was offering. And it was something that people wanted to consume. And the technology wasn't a barrier because the content was so good. Yeah, and, and hey guys, there's an opportunity there as the medium wave band empties out. <laughs> Over to you, Mark. You wanted to say something. I, I just wanted to say that I, I'm on a local community station in, uh, in Northamptonshire, Beatroot Radio. They're funny enough. While we're recording this, they're actually four years old today. Uh, they produce live programmes most of the day, uh, everything except for the for, for the midnight till nine a.m. bit. Um, but I know that they get a month average. They get 45,000 hits a month of people listening for more than 20 minutes. Now, that, that's incredible. They, the guy rings up the, the, the relevant copyright agencies and they go, we have FM stations who don't get that kind of audience. And it is quite about content. It's a local content, it's local people, but people seem to like it and, and they get a really good audience. Well, as I, as I tend to say to students, it doesn't matter whether what you're listening to is coming down a piece of string into a tin can or over the telephone or on a, an old-fashioned radio or via the internet or via your phone. You don't care. What you want is to be able to listen to the content that you want in an easily consumable format reliably. That's it. Going, going back to content, that was very much a driver uh, for me and my involvement. Once I'd got over the, the fascination, um, and I've always had that um, sort of tactile fascination with the equipment, and I remember buying resistors before I knew what to do with them, because they looked like licorice all sorts, and they were pretty, and I could count, work out the code on them. Um, but, you know, once... We'd got over, we didn't quite ever get over it because you're always developing. You're developing new ways of linking, um, going live, having automatic switching on and off, microwave and things like that, which my, you know, people like Martin and Piers Easton as well, Chris Miles, you know, who was my engineer at the time um, in, in London. Um, it was suddenly realised that it was providing an alternative to what's there, like um, you, Mark, with Comsat was a punk station, um, Phoenix was alternative, Alice's Restaurant was rock, Radio Zodiac International. I think people have compared us to two things. We were like Six Music before Six Music started, many years before, and also Channel 4 in, in terms of Zodiac and our radio, one of the most political stations I've been involved with, in being open access radio. Sure, we had our own political views, but... Our main aim, like a community station, was to give access to special interest groups who weren't being heard at the time 
and were perceived as being radical, if you like, at the time, um, giving them some airspace. So we, you know, on our radio, there was Gay Waves, there was The Message, which was a libertarian program, um, there was uh, Women of the Waves, which obviously was a feminist program as well. Um, and all these things were seen at the time as being radical. Um, Today, you know, apart from we've got this cultural war going on about woke and anti-woke, you know, things like apartheid, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the accepted as being bad across the board, things like, you know, women's rights are, are generally accepted as being a good thing. Um, so, you know, we, we were giving airtime to these groups on giving them a platform as community radio quite often does today and stations like Channel 4 TV stations or did. Um, I don't know what if Gogglebox is um, <laughs> can be considered um, community access, but it's regular people talking quite often. But and also the music as well, alternative and indie music, and 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 specialist specialist genres. You know, many many bands we first gave airplay to as well uh, are now considered mainstream um, or you know uh, very popular. I remember playing you know U2 back in the early days, who became one of the world's biggest rock bands, but also bands like the Postcard Label in Scotland used to send us Orange Juice and Aztec Camera, and we used to play all of those bands and Wire and um, Perubu and things like that. Um, so yeah, we were we were between us. Um, Dare I mention the Discs du Crépuscule? Oh, oh yes. yes, I love the Discs du from Belgium. They're a great label as well. I, I always play every Christmas the Swinging Buildings and Let's Pray for a Cheaper Christmas. <laughs> one of the most obscure Christmas records ever. <laughs> but I think Little should take yeah. that up as their next TV commercial at Christmas. And actually, isn't it isn't it the case that you know, in some ways, not that much has changed in the main in the mainstream media landscape. I mean, still. When I tune around, I mean, let's get away from radio just for a sec. When I tune around on my TV, there's, there's nothing. No. There's almost nothing. And there's, su there's still such a... It's, you know, th it's all fallen down to formula. Yeah, exactly. It's all, a documentary these days is always done in the same way. If, yeah. if, you know, if, if ever I hear a piece of pizzicato again when some humorous is happening, Isn't that annoying? it drives oh, me mad. Yeah. You, know, for, you know, a bit more imagination. You don't need a clarinet or a pizzicato to tell me that. It obviously works, which is why people use it. But the, yeah. they, they just revert but, to it yeah. all the time. And they're, they're compelled or, or, or told to, to fit into that, um, yeah, into so that format. format. Yes, yeah. Yeah. The format. And the same in radio today. Which, which, was an, you know, which was an idea that we were doing when the others weren't. You know, we had specific formats um but it's just it's just yes but i think i think what happened was with our formats in in that everybody the presenters were allowed to interpret it and put their own input and personality into it which always kept it less formalized if you like obviously if someone yeah, didn't do it very well mm. they you, you wouldn't carry on doing it with them but but people who got involved um you say this is our format go and do it you know add your own personality to it and yeah do it and legit way. radio now is the same you know i think is the same you know you've got formulaic um yes exactly you know formats yeah. radio formats and you've got the bbc you know still very very blinkered and you know very much limited in that yes it's wider than it used to be but those limits are still there and the, you the will pressures, not hear the pressures on conformity are getting even beyond. greater yes. so there, there is still a battle yeah. to 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 bring good quality and alternative quality content to the fore i mean the pressures on the bbc to conform at the moment uh, are incredible as well um 
And that's do you think been going on a long while. How much of that while. is internal, and how much of that is external? Do you think they're both? Um, they're, mean, both they're, they're both. They're um, both in, uh, intertwined. intertwined. Well, I uh, seem to remember yeah. on Radio Zodiac we did a, a, a history of the BBC, and there was something where we said about uh, someone had written in their diary in 1926 after the general strike. You know, we wanted to demonstrate our impartiality, and uh, those in power knew that we could be trusted not to be truly impartial. <laughs> yes, and it yeah. also comes down to Gil Scott Heron's thing about you know so so however many channels it was and still you can't find anything on and so because it becomes so formulaic yeah bruce uh, springsteen did that as well and tom petty the last dj but uh, yeah yeah i think um you know we're, we're still batting at an open door you know i'm creating a a, a, a new alternative media for the Cote d'Azur at the moment and it's been a long-standing project but i you know I, I frankly believe that um they're not being served the community in the way that they they need to be or want to be because we've got a classic ilr station down there star station with um you know the same 350 songs being repeated over and over and over um and i think that the audience demands something a bit more intelligent and a bit more stimulating than that I think the problem is that it's become, certainly in this country, commercial radio as opposed to independent radio. So it's purely about making money. They bought all the radio stations in order to buy frequencies to play adverts. And that was the simple thing. Now, they're poaching the BBC's presenters because the BBC have got to publish the salaries now. And they go, right, well, we'll have them, them and them. I don't really have an issue with that, to be brutally honest. I think the BBC need to be moved on sometimes <laughs> in that way. Uh, and I think it's probably going to be good for Radio 2 in the long run, uh, the people that, that have moved on. I just think that there is a big issue with everything is about, it's got to have a commercial value. Even the BBC has to have commercial value. They have to compete with the commercial sector. And I think that's where the problem really comes in. They're always going, whether it's television or whether it's radio or anything, even in newspapers, it's lowest common denominator all the time. And an awful lot of people just get left hanging out those two sides. Uh, you know, luckily we've got things like Six Music, which are different and alternative, and the Asian Network. But the way that they're completely destroying local radio, what's left, the BBC local radio, by regionalising certain times of the day... Um, it's all about commercial pressures in the end. And they just see, oh, well, that's what Greatest Hits are doing and that's what Capital's doing and that's what Smooth's doing. So we've got to do the same thing. We've but got to try and get that kind of listener. Isn't it also a function of, you know, big organisations? So you look at BBC Local Radio, it's a fascinating example of uh, something which came from outside the BBC that was kind of foisted on them to start with after the Marine Offences Act. And they gave stations a lot of independence. And those stations clearly recognised their audiences. And then the IBA followed that with a requirement for localness and a, and a diversity of programming. And the problem for the BBC is that it always has centralising tendencies. So the first real evidence of that was, for example, when all the stations had to start using the same branding on the same vehicles. Mm. And then they've got the pressures of, of the, uh, you know, the economic pressures on the BBC are huge and they lose sight of what the radio is about. And so the economic drivers, as you say, are what end up defining the limits of what you can do with BBC Local Radio. You know, if you look at the costs of the BBC Local Radio, because of the way they apportion the costs, it's incredibly expensive to produce BBC Local Radio. And you look at stations like Sunshine in, in, in Ludlow, for example, and a, and a lot of community stations, they produce more content on a, a, a smidgen of the budget that the local BBC stations have. And that's really a 
depressing state of affairs. I think what we need to do now is get back on yeah. track. <laughs> Let's get Thank back you, Mark. to the Anoraking. Yes, hoods up, everybody. Right, OK. So um, something I remember really, really well is going through a trap door in your parents' house in the bathroom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember to, that. To broadcast That's... from the loft. Now we're going a long way back in time. That was Phoenix Radio when, you know, when the... Yeah, I think it was Radio oops. Buccaneer and Radio Lucy, even earlier than Phoenix. Mm, you may be right. You may be right. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to go and check through my cassettes, which I've still got a huge box of cassettes from those days that I've never listened to. I don't know if they're playable. Uh, I think some of them will be and some of them won't be. Probably the TDK ones would be all right. But anyway, yes, that was going back. That, that would be the days after the ELRs, NLRs and Amy's had closed down and really there was a vacuum in North London and it, I, I'd, when that happened, I, I immediately started to try and build a rig. I built this absolutely horrific 6L6 crystal oscillator modulated by a guitar amp, um, which I ran from my parents' house uh, and it was actually in the attic with the aerial wire sloping down from the hatch in the attic down to a tree at the bottom of the garden. And, um, yeah, that, that rig barely worked, but we did get, I remember, a phone call from uh, Tony, the guy who did Radio Carina, who I think has been mentioned elsewhere, and I certainly remember very fondly, Tony Harrison. I can't remember what his on-air name was. Can anybody remember that? No. Anyway, um, we got a phone call, so we knew it was getting out to some extent, and we had no studio at all. All we had was a cassette machine, so we interspersed um, bootleg copies of, you know, that had been recorded from friends' albums with recording uh, our links live in the attic on, a, on the tiny microphone that came with the cassette player. That was the first thing we did, and it was probably... I'd love to hear a recording of it, but it was probably truly embarrassing. But the enthusiasm of it and the excitement of getting phone calls was just huge. Well, I'm going to go back a little bit before that even because I do remember my whole... I've done this on, on the podcast that I featured on uh, when, when uh, Laurie um, interviewed me. But I do remember the first time we came round to your house and it was all to do with the Radio Amy East thing and Chris England and, and all that stuff. And, and I remember going round to your house and, and Laurie said to me, we're going to go and see a transmitter. And I had the... the in my head, again, I've spoken about this before... It was a dome-shaped thing, and I couldn't understand. And then, then you said, "And this is the transmitter," and it was basically a pile of components on a de on a bench. I think yeah. I think you were you were sort of reliving the TARDIS and Doctor Who with this <laughs> dome in the middle. That's <laughs> where that's... your idea of a transmitter came from. The endless influence of the BBC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exterminate. Yeah, I, I think yeah, that was, and it probably sounded something like that and all. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely remember remember all of that. We've gone through the Buccaneer, the Lucy, the Amy's, the whole setup, uh, the beginning of it all. Um, let's talk a little bit about Phoenix Radio and what, what, how this started and um, how that developed. Well, that was as a result of the famous uh, 6L6 crystal oscillator rig, which, as you remember correctly, was, didn't have a chassis or anything. It was just a pile of components in the attic. Um, I remember doing, in the very early days, doing test transmissions on that and recording a message on a cassette, uh, which was the only method I had at the time, no studio, um, saying, if anybody picks up this broadcast, phone this number. And the number was the phone, you know, the classic drafty phone box at the end of the road. 
And so I put the tape on with a couple of minutes silence, run up to the phone box with my little portable radio. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yes, I can hear it going out. Well, I think the first or second time I did it, the phone started ringing and it nearly gave me a heart attack. I couldn't believe that someone was listening. And it was Laurie. Laurie phoned me up and said, oh, hello, I'm Lawrence Hallett from the Redbridge Free Broadcast Unit. And, you know, you, you've mentioned this idea that we had, that you'd tune into a station, you'd imagine all this complicated equipment that they had, you know, like something out of an American film. And, and in your mind, that's what you were listening to. Well, of course, when Laurie said this, I, I immediately thought, oh, my God, what have I stumbled into? There's obviously this huge organisation which already exists. And I think, you know, Laurie had been uh, working with uh, some mates of his, including Steve there. Steve, yeah. yeah. And Steve had tried to build a, tr a transistorised rig, with one of those really never weird VMP1, uh, uh, very weird I, It was device, even before yeah. that, mate. It was very PMP, bipolar. It was... Yeah. Uh, anyway. Anyway, it didn't work. So, <laughs> so, so that was the beginning, was that phone call. And then, of course, very soon after that, we met up. I think this was pre-pub days. We were probably about 15 or something. We met up just before you were going back to school. Uh, but you were about right. to leave school. We met, and then right. the meeting was pretty short because you had to get in a car and leave. Where we lived, we, they, were, they were serving 15-year-olds in pubs in my day. <laughs> well, yes, actually, I didn't know that at the time, <laughs> but I soon found out due to the Caroline Roadshow. Yeah. <laughs> right, so that, that's, that's the start of Phoenix. Uh, it did go on, because I was on Phoenix as well with you, and it did go on to be almost a regular Sunday thing for a while, wasn't it, on 214? Yes, it was, uh, 1404 kilohertz. And, you know, really, we did achieve our goal of, of replacing the ELR, NLR, Amy uh, era, which had lasted for, I don't know, not that long, probably had only lasted, you know, a couple of years. Um, so, yeah, we were broadcasting from uh, the fields in Buckhurst. Well, it's actually a small forest in Buckhurst Hill. I've got a story about that one. I remember putting up a wire aerial with Laurie. I'm pretty sure Laurie was there, and maybe you were there. Mm. Do you, I don't know if either of you remember this, but I remember struggling to put up a wire aerial, and in the end we got my brother to throw a massive bow, literally with the aerial wire tied onto it, over a tree, and managed to make this inverted L, which we'd heard about. You know, Had no idea, really, of the technicalities at the time, but we knew you had to get a bit of, a bit of wire over a tree. And I remember having finally achieved this thing, being in the woods, you know, for a couple of two or three hours in an afternoon to get it all done. And then walking away and literally within about 50 metres, finding another aerial and, you know, doing a double take and going, what the hell's going on? Where did that aerial come from? And it turned out, I, I think we subsequently found out years later, that it was ELR was still thinking of broadcasting and had put some aerials up. Um, so yeah, and then we went on to broadcast not every single Sunday, but I think most Sundays for probably nine months or a year. Uh, yeah, I'd say so because we—I think we started actually on because we we had to. Uh, we told this in an earlier episode. We went by bike and we pedalled over to Christopher England and got I think originally a thirteen ninety-five kilohertz crystal, yep. and then we got to fourteen oh four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you, Chris, for the early crystals. Yeah. I remember Chris. I remember an early conversation with Chris England where we all got together and. Him starting off by saying, "All right, then. So, are you guys a bunch of workers or what? <laughs> do you go? Do you remember that? I remember him literally. You know, that is literally what he said, or that's my memory of it. And, and us sort of saying, "Oh, well, you know, we're we're going to do community radio." And I think, you know, we had underestimated the difficulty of doing community, you know, real community radio and having input. So it ended up quite a lot of it was playing records, but you know, 
more interesting records than you could get on other stations. A nice recording of your mum when you interviewed <laughs> her about, do you like poetry? And your mum telling poetry stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember that. I mean, yeah. Bearing in mind we were 17 or so, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a bad attempt. The feature I remember from Phoenix Radio was when you went to, I think you went to Onger Underground Station, which was still running at the time, and interviewed people about them closing the Epping and Onger line. I did indeed. And somewhere I've got the reel-to-reel tape of that still. That's real community stuff. The, uh, but going back to what you were saying, I mean, we're aerial riggers. Every, everyone had to have on site someone who could use a catapult or throw really well to be able to get that long wire if you're doing or AM. Or climb a tree. Jackie used to climb their trees. Wow. Good yes. grief. Aerial riggers. Very lucky nobody uh, lost a limb on that one. Yeah, oh, very know, good. I don't know. Or did they? A tree limb. Well, uh, well, I know Jackie's main tree climber is the guy who now runs the radio station, Tony Collis. He's, yeah. he's the one who right. was the and he's climber. still got all his limbs, which is a miracle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, so Phoenix Radio closes down uh, for a whole host of reasons. Like all radio stations, people just drift off or they lose interest in what they're doing. Um, and I know that your next major project was Alice's Restaurant. So tell us about, first thing I want to know is, how, I know where the name comes from, but why did you call it Alice's uh, Restaurant? Well, now we're back to the pub. Uh, I, I had the idea for doing a rock station because that really was the culture at school. And um, I just, the day I just, I still can remember clear as a bell the day I discovered rock and roll. There was a band at school, you know, of, of, of the guys, of the pupils, um, who were doing um, Dr. Feelgood covers. And they did them very well indeed. And I remember... Up until then, I've been listening to Capital on FM and sort of quite enjoying their sort of fairly bland and soft rock is what they were doing in those days. But then after that gig, tuning into the radio was just like, no, this is not hitting the spot at all. And so this was probably, seeing that band was probably about three or four years before this, but I definitely got into rock music. I'd heard, as you have discussed with Bear and others, the those T1, those legendary T1 broadcasts of um, just anarchic, um, humour-driven, plus rock music. Yeah, there were, there were no rules to those uh, broadcasts, were there? No all? rules, but playing excellent music. I mean, really introducing to good album tracks. Uh, so I've been inspired by that. And so then when Phoenix was kind of uh, coming to an end, or had come to an end, that, that was my next project. But I never thought of that name. I, I had clearly decided, yeah, I want to put a rock station on. That's going to be the next thing. And actually, this is a story that is worth telling. We were all down a pub. I can't remember which one, but it may have been the Three Colts in Buckerstill, which was kind of our go-to pub for pirate meetings. You know, being right next to the forest where some of our sites are didn't do any harm, did it? No. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a guy called Bill. I, I can't remember his uh, second name but a guy, a guy called Bill, who had been involved in Radio Floss, had turned up at the pub. And I can't remember how that originally came about, but it almost certainly must have been... It was before we did our first broadcast, which was the Royal Wedding, not the Royal Wedding broadcast. The first, like the first Alice's broadcast. For, yeah, which would have been 1981. Anyway, this guy Bill had turned up, and he, I clearly remember him saying, oh, well, why don't we have a bit of an angle on this and go for it? You know, not call it radio anything, but just go with Alice's Restaurant. And because of the lyric of the song, you can get whatever you want. And the original idea for Alice's was a very broad format of literally all different kinds of rock music. 
and even even some stuff that wasn't even rock music, you know, verging onto folk and that kind of thing. Well, the story I'd heard is, is that you you all were broadcasting various different types of alternative rock and so on and so forth. And it just became a little bit of an issue because there was heavy rock there next to, as you say, folk music and, and world music as it was at the time. Uh, and that's how Phoenix Radio then came, or the FM version of Phoenix Radio came out of that. Yeah, I mean, it developed as, as everything in the world developed. It developed with its own momentum, um, which was basically driven by the people who joined, who again, as has been mentioned by others, you know, are basically listeners. The, the, whole, the whole ethos of Pirate Radio is that you can become a listener and then it's only quite a small step to then, you know, attending at a meeting at a pub to have a few beers and, you know, having a few beers and then ending up, oh, well, I might as well do this. Well, well the interesting um, thing is the only people I've spoken to who just went and did Pirate Radio and had no clue about it, weren't listeners, knew nothing about it, were the people from RFM, yep, Claire and Dave. Yep. And they... they they explained the whole thing to me. That they... I, I've heard that, by the way. Yes. And there's some very interesting things in there that I'd love to know more. They said, oh, we got a lot of help from somebody from Alice's in the early days. Well, that wasn't me, as, it, as far as I remember. It wasn't me. So I'd love to know more about that story. Could have been anyway, Bear. You had Bear on the team, didn't you? Yeah, Bear, Bear, could, Bear was yeah. On, on RFL, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah could have... Uh, Sorry, RFM. Uh, RFM, yeah, possibly, possibly. So anyway, going back to the early days, as I remember... It was initially uh, myself and Lawrence and that guy, Ken. I can't, again, I can't remember his, you know, we're talking... Do you, are you talking about Ken, um, Ken Beale? Ken Beale, that's Yeah, because yeah. he was helping me out with Comsat, but he was really a rock fan. Right, And, and okay. he was from... Ed Is that where he came from? Edmonton. So he kind of, yeah, that's right. He came yeah, from yeah, Edmonton. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he yeah. sort of came via you then. In yes, some, yeah, he was, yeah, he was a sort of friend of mine. So he, he certainly, I remember, was involved very early on and certainly before Bear... Bear, Bear was obviously, you know, a great member of the team and a very enthusiastic, and he, he would help with the tower block work. And was there a guy mucking. called Darren as well? Um, or am I, is my well, memory playing tricks a, on there me? There was a guy called Darren back in the Phoenix Radio in the very early meeting. Right, oh, he wasn't uh, Alice's. Who, so that was, yeah, the early days of Alice's. So we did, we started off with a special broadcast, with just a one-off, which was when they were doing the Royal Wedding of Charles and Diana. And I think we... You know, without necessarily being very savvy about it, I think we just realised that this was going to be a huge opportunity. And we didn't realise how huge an opportunity it would be in that every single other media organisation, literally for days on end, was wall-to-wall, -wall, nothing but the Royal Wedding. It really was hyped. And, of course, it left, it left that classic opportunity for something different, which is what we decided to provide. So we did that broadcast and it was from my parents' house, AM and FM. We started off with FM from the beginning. Wasn't putting out a huge signal because it was only about 25 watts. Um, and again, the technology from that um, goes back to Tony from Carina. He sold me an F my first FM rig and then I copied them after that and gradually picked up tips from, as you say, Piers, who was, I would say Piers was the, you know, the primary uh, you know, he was the best engineer who came up with the newest ideas. And was, was he the guy who, who started off the links, the whole link system, linking studios? As far and as far as I know, yes. I mean, it's very difficult to say at this range, you know, who was first. And there were others. There was Roger Howe, who mm. unfortunately is no longer with us. He died a couple of years ago. Roger Tate of Radium Victor. He Absolutely. Was a great engineer. Yeah, Bob yeah. Tomowski. Bob Tomowski. The, the great Bob Tomowski, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think Bob Tomowski really taught peers in the early days, a lot of what Piers 
found out was from Bob. Tum- and of course, we should say Bob Tomowski was the engineer from Invicta. Yes, yes. he was. Um, there, there's a great podcast which features heavily Bob Tomowski. Steve um, Marshall's, yeah. Um, and well, that one, but also there's a thing called The Interruption which is about an interruption of the Southern television yes. program oh. back in 77. Yeah, and there's a guy who that. did an entire podcast series about it. And it turned out it was Bob Tomalski all along. And he thought right. it was some sort of, literally some sort of alien Aliens. takeover. And he interviewed alien priests. And he even interviewed Uri Geller, would you believe? Yes. Right. Yeah. No, I can believe that. Um, can believe that. And it's a really... So if you want to listen to that... It turned it into about five or six episodes. It, it, so it, it t- does explore many different areas. It came out to yeah. eight episodes yeah. with, with, with a prologue as well. Uh, he did get my name wrong, but we won't um, uh, talk about that. But I was on that one as well. Laurie's on that one. Uh, but if, if you're into Pirate Radio and, and specifically Bob Tomowski... And UFOs. <laughs> yes, and UFOs. Oh. Uh, should we, should we get into UFOs? No, 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 not yet. Uh, the, the, the podcast uh, is called The Interruption and, it, and um, yeah. from Start Productions. It's really, really good. So have a listen right. to that. Yeah. Sorry, carry so on. So going back to Alice's, yeah. Um, going back to those early days, of course, there was also a lot of people that Lawrence knew um, from his days at the London College of Printing who were involved at the radio... I'm not sure what it was. I think it was radio training course that they did. Well, I think... Didn't he do radio journalism there? Ah, radio journalism. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. That was it. And certainly they had a studio in a tower block down at Elephant and Castle. Elephant and Castle were their base, yeah. Which we were able to use on occasion, which was great to have a real studio. Um, So there there was an interesting cross-fertilisation from those guys... Uh, including some of whom were much older. I don't know whether they were staff members or whether... I I don't think they were. I think they were older people who had been involved in the course in some form or another. Um, And so they, you know, they brought along their their obscure 60s psychedelia records, you know. Uh, so, So, yeah, that first broadcast, I think, went on for three days. We got... And it was completely unannounced. We just switched on. And we got a pretty good response. I seem to remember we took about 80 to 100 phone calls. And then after the broadcast, you know, we got a reasonable number of letters. And what, what medium wave frequency were you using so then? That was on 1512, because originally we had uh, planned that Alice's Restaurant would be a nighttime radio station. And then we decided, I mean, the details elude me now, but for some reason we decided that we would do this uh, royal wedding broadcast to kick the whole thing off which, of course, was 24, uh, 24 hours a day. And 12, uh, sorry, 1512 at the time was um, used by uh, BRT1, which was a national Belgian station, I think with something like 100 or 200 kilowatts from the north of Belgium. So unfortunately, although um, we had a reasonable signal, it didn't actually get out that well um, because we were co channel with this huge signal from Belgium. And it was constantly beating with that. I know I've got a few tapes, you know, stashed away somewhere. So, but it got out well enough that, uh, yeah, that broadcast certainly was quite a good launch pad. And I think got the enthusiasm going, set a musical direction and a cultural direction, um, you know, which then subsequently... um, And of course, we should mention, there's a name I forgot to mention, is Dave Thomas, um, who seems to have disappeared. We, We don't know what's happened to Dave. But Dave, if you're listening to this, um, please make contact because we all remember you fondly and you, you, we all think you did a great job on Alice's with the music in particular. And we'd love to, we'd love to hear from you. Um, so, yeah, that kicked us off. And then 
I'm trying to remember the sequence of events. I think after that point, we did go to Saturday nights. So for the first year or so of weekly operation, maybe even two years, we were Saturday night, switch on at 11. And our idea was that people would switch on, of course, in those days, the pubs, licenses, you know, pretty much ubiquitously, I think, all ended at 11. And I, again, it seems weird to remember now, but you had this um, phenomenon of drunk people pouring onto the streets at 11 o'clock, particularly on a Saturday, Friday and Saturday night, which people probably can't even imagine now. Well, I don't know. I, uh, I think it still happens. I just think that we're too old to recognise it now. Probably, yeah, yeah. OK, that's, that's a fair comment. Yeah. So, yeah, we then moved to Saturday nights. Um, we had a tower block site over in uh, East London, Whalebone Lane. Um, and I think we were linking from Dave Thomas's house on the FM band, at the opposite end of the FM band, with a little half-watt FM link, um, which I'd, co I'd concocted based on um, Tony's FM design. Um, and so, yeah, at that point the format began to come together and it was influenced by those people who joined and became, in, including Ken. I think Ken was one of the early ones who was definitely into the heavier side of rock. And I think as a result of, of that kind of material being broadcast, uh, then we attracted Bear. Uh, and so after probably about one to two years, Bear joined and that was a major, a major improvement. And that's where we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Thanks very much for listening to the first part of this two-part special featuring all those old pirates that I mentioned before. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the podcast, then piratepod7080 at gmail.com is the best way to do that. We'd also like it if you could like, follow, subscribe and leave a review. If you like the podcast and enjoy what we do, then why not support us by buying me a coffee? It helps with the recording and hosting costs. All you need to do is go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash markwakeleyw. Thanks very much. We'll be back in two weeks' time with the second part of this epic pirate radio interview. In the meantime, remember, look out during those tape changes. Radio Nova, broadcasting on 14.04 kilohertz of the medium wave band, 212 metres. Unfortunately, we've had to suspend your regular broadcasting. This is due to the post office requiring to test and inspect our equipment. We'll return you to normal broadcasting just as soon as we can. This is a 1386 audio production.